welcome to episode 22 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're going to be talking about the uh, first story from episode 2 from season 2. It is uh, A Death in the Family. It's first aired uh, September 22nd, 1971. This is a Rod Serling teleplay based on the short story by Miriam Allen DeFord and is directed by Genoir Swarick is um, a fantastic director for, for Night Gallery. We're going to talk a little, quite a lot about him over the weeks. But first, though, it also features this story, one of my favourite introductions from the entire se- second season. It, it's a wonderful intro from, um, from, from Rod Serling. So why don't we let him introduce our story? How nice of you all to come to our little exhibition. To the connoisseurs amongst you, those tasteful few who take their art seriously, we acknowledge with no apologies that you won't find the works of the masters here. Because in this particular salon, we choose our painting with an eye more towards terror than technique. A little American Gothic here, with the accustomed accoutrements to mourning, tombstones and tears, and the somber look of the bereaved. We generally cry at funerals out of a sense of loss. A poor, unfortunate loved one who will no longer walk the earth. He or she will simply occupy six feet of it. Never to be seen or heard from again. Or at least we make an assumption that that's natural law and we subscribe to it. But this painting here, and we admit this up front, breaks that law. It's called A Death in the Family. It offers up a new view of death. And it introduces you to quite a family who live here in the night gallery. Okay, so our story starts with Jared Soames. He's a uh, well, he's played by E.G. Marshall. He's an undertaker, and he has just been receiving the body of a man called uh, Simon Cotner. Jared is a, a sensitive soul, and he's horrified to discover that Simon will not get the uh, the funeral that. Uh, well, at the very least, Jared feels that he should get. He's uh, he died alone, elderly. In a, he'd been in a home for thirty years, and um, also he was. Um, well, I mean, you know, he's getting a, he's in it going on a, a charity, going to a, again putting the ground in a charity burial patch. He only gets a hundred, um, hundred dollars. There's no, uh, there's no stone for him particularly. It's just a wooden cross, and he'll have no mourners for he had no friends. The plight and the sadness of Simon's death is probably best summed up by um, one of the rather cheesed-off men who was uh, driving the uh, the body originally to the funeral home, and uh, we'll let him explain exactly Simon's plight. You know how long that guy was in that home? Thirty-odd years. You know how many friends he's got? Zero. You know how many letters he's received in all that time? Zero. You know what they call that uh, oil burner we delivered him in? A meat wagon. Let me lay it out for you, Mr. Soames. You want to throw in a floral wreath, a couple dozen weepers, a fife and drum corps, that's your business. But uh, don't do it on our account. When a man dies, when a man dies... Ought to be everybody's business. Mr. Soames, when this man dies, it's your business. A hundred bucks worth. 
payable upon receipt from the graves registration guy that the hole got dug, a box got placed, and a hole got covered. Now, is uh, anything else on your mind before we go? After the body is buried, we go back to, um, well, back to, we discover a couple of things. We discover a, a convict is on the loose, a, a former murderer. This is a man called uh, Doran. He's a fugitive and he's been shot by police already. Uh, in desperation, he takes refuge in the old funeral home of um, of Jared's. And uh, Jared helps him when he sees him. He isn't particularly scared of him. Um, uh, he lets him rest. And also um, gives him... Well, he lets him... Uh, the, he's, he believes the wounds are going to kill him. So he shows him some kindness as well. Um, Doran is uh, touched by the help that he's been given. He is a man who normally feels that, well, that no one really helps him. He's a convicted killer who uh, will ever get parole. So he's just grateful that uh, somebody in this time of terrible need would actually give him some mercy. Hey. I'm doing 99 years for murder one. You understand? That means homicide first degree. That means no parole. That means I'm a rotten apple. Until tonight, the only hand I ever got was the back of it. That and a kick in the pants. The taste of the sidewalk. It's a funny thing. I gotta wait until the lights are half out and I've got one foot in hell. And I crawl on my hands and my knees to a dead house. To find somebody. Somebody living. Somebody warm. You rest. No one will disturb you. When he awakens, however, after after some rest, he finds out well he's fallen on the floor. Basically, uh, he he goes to find out where our undertaker is. Um, he hears noises and heads down to the basement. And to his horror, he discovers that um, our late Simon Cotter wasn't actually put in the ground, but is now part of a very unusual dinner party. Um, there is a, a dinner party going on. They, uh, they're all wearing top hats. There are balloons. But there are all corpses apart from our man, uh, Jared. Um, he seems to, out of his loneliness, create himself a, um, well, a, a, a rather chilling dinner party. But it's also quite tragic as well. Um, he basically goes to Doran and explains his plight to him and, and why he's doing this. My family. My wife. My 
two children. My mother, brother, and this is my father. Just arrived tonight. We were having a welcome home party for him. Don't be frightened. No one will hurt you. Down here is only love and peace. They're dead. Dead? Why? Because they don't struggle like the living. Because they don't compete. Because they don't hate. Because they know nothing of greed, intolerance, prejudice. Out there is the graveyard. Up there, the slaughterhouse where they kill and bury dreams. The whole world full of lonely pallbearers. Down here, in this room, my son, is a family. Doran freaks out, absolutely goes mental, and probably unsurprisingly so. He tries to make a dart for it. He hears um, state troopers banging on the door and uh, trying to get in. Um, they uh, he pulls, he's got a gun in his hands, and uh, that you flick over to where the state troopers are, and they hear uh, two shots. So they burst into the room, into the house with great drama. drama. They shoot the lock off the door. Um, sprint downstairs and then see uh, the dinner party scene um, we have now got the, the family uh, they're also now slumped on one of the chairs is our man Doran obviously dead and um, the uh, our caretaker or caretaker, undertaker makes one last um, speech to introduce his very lonely family to the state troopers before slumping in his chair to join them in death. It is, um, well, I mean, you know, it's quite a sad story, really. It's, it's, he joins the family, um, but in a, in, not in a great way. <laughs> um, I suppose the best thing, first off, to, uh, well, discussing the episode is to talk a bit about. Our man, Genoir Swarak. Um, he's uh, this uh, night gallery was the making of him. He's popped up in the past before. He directed uh, one of the better shows in the season one, A Little Black Bag, um, for a fantastic story, which is probably the most Twilight Zoney story that we've encountered so far in terms of being, you know, having a strong. Super, well, supernatural, but unusual uh, and quirky world, but with a str- with you know a, a strong um, moralistic tone to it. Um, this basically, Night Gallery gave him what he wanted his his big break. Um, uh, let, let me, I'll read a quote from him. Jack knew uh, I was nuts about the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling's work. I love Night Gallery. It was like home to me. I had a natural affinity for the show. In French literature at the end of the 19th century was a genre called fantastique. I had a feeling for that kind of stuff. Anything that had to do with atmosphere. That was a little bit absurd or a little strange. I loved it. I think I wound up doing some of my best work on that series. Um, 
I would agree with him. I mean, this episode in total features a great deal of his, his best work, in truth. There's this, he um, the short story that comes afterwards, which is another Jack Laird penned Ickle one, is one of the better ones of these kind of stories, and he directs that, cause, mainly because he gives that story heart. Obviously, we'll discuss that next week. But then, of course, we've got Class of 99, which is another great Rod Sale and script and another fantastic story. It is... And then the, the uh, repeat. I mean, we'll get into a lot of these details. He also does Satisfaction Guaranteed as well, which is uh, on the DVD, uh, which is the last, the closing story of this uh, of this episode. Um, so he's fantastic. He's great in what he does. So what we have here is a, a great character study with some great horror and uh, tragic overtones to it. It's the ending, I think, which may, which really shows this to be true. Um, I think the main reason for that is, well, it's three things. I think it's Serling managed to give um, our man um, Jared a very strong, very you know, again, he gives him some great speak, some great speeches, and some great language to really show exactly where his heart is. Um, Swarik's, um direction. Is, is 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 light of touch. He doesn't give. Uh, he give the the, mu- the use of music and and the tone is um, adds elements of, of of comedy to to this quite bleak scene, and that also gives us something a little bit more touching, but also quite upsetting as well. Um, I mean, you know, obviously none of this would any be would be any good without E. G. Marshall's work. Um, the way he's able to um, take Serling's words and um, make him an understandable character, despite some pretty monstrous activity in, in truth. Um, also, obviously, is a strong but very unusual performance by uh, Desi Arnaz Jr. as Doran. Um, the reason why I say it's unusual is because he gives the character a kind of... Well, he doesn't appear to be somebody who could murder somebody, but obviously, you know, he's a victim of his. Cir- he feels he looks like very much like a victim of his circumstances, and in truth, quite a weak-willed man. And I think that really helps the character in, in, in this set in this story, because you need to be able to get behind him and feel sorry for him. I mean, part of the thing about this story is that he's a you know, our man Doran is somebody who is you know always looking for help and he's he's amazed when somebody actually shows him some mercy so you know this this family this 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 party that's going on is of people who are alone who are forgotten who nobody really loves and in this case i think that's a good a good example of that you know it's a good um it's very sad that this is happening to him but you know he fa- he's found his home effectively these these themes are, are, are quite subtly done, and I think that's to the story's credit. It's and it's I, I, you know on fair sight, it's just quite a creepy and unsettling story. But there are underlying and more intelligent work going on here. It's also, I mean, you know, that scene, that dinner party scene, is later used for other films as well. And obviously, this is based on on, on a short story, but. Um, Horror, horror, horror buffs will uh, remember a film called Happy Birthday to Me and um, 
fans of the films from the Video Nasties list, uh, the UK list of banned films from the early 80s, will remember a film called Madhouse, um, which feature, both of which feature quite similar uh, dinner party uh, scenes of you know uh, people having a, meant to be having a party, but all the corpses there making it an incredibly bleak and upsetting thing. Um, also, just to uh, say, I mean, basically, uh, you know, it, it the the bodies look very good. They look like real corpses to a certain, to a certain extent. Obviously, some of the makeup does struggle. How this was achieved is very simple. What they did was they, rather than use still photographs, which always look like photographs, which tends to be what can be used a lot in that kind of thing at that point, they use slow-mo. So, obviously, the body, you know, the actors hold the breath and they, um, you know, keep as still as possible, eyes open. But uh, the slow-mo gives the, the a far longer shot, which I think um, really helps. Um, it makes it far more lifelike, I think. It just... Um, as I always have to seem to, you know, it's important to mention these things. Serling's script was cut for runtime. Um, there isn't a lot about Serling's response to that, although obviously he hated his scripts being cut, particularly when some of the filler was, you know, what, you know, some of these these rather poor episodes. Um, they are well, basically, they, um, well, they, it was cut mainly for well, it was for, for it's it's because you know this feeling from Laird that. Serling's uh, scripts were too flowery um, and too long, uh, and they didn't, you know, get the story moving fast enough. Um, so he basically introduced each member of the family, and this kind of uh, gave more impetus to which each, each each member and why they're alone and why they're now part of the family. Um, that was cut. It's actually in the longer syndicated versions. Um, However, as I've mentioned before, we don't discuss the syndicated versions. They don't exist in this dojo, so we're just going to ignore that. Um, however, if you are interested, you, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to root them out quite quickly. Um, it's a, one of those few occasions, I suppose, where, you know, rather than it being, you know, these syndicated stories, which were used um, basically to fill out the episode so they could do go out as, like, each story was a short, you know, a, a, episode, a short episode of Night Gallery. To the... Um, they, they well in this one occasion was probably actually giving it a bit of a boost, but um, you know rather than filling with a lot of them where we just filled with stock footage and you know B-roll footage trying to fill the, the thing out. Um, well that's it really. I mean I think it's a great little story. Um, it's uh, it's it's very touching. It, it leads into a great episode. I think even as it stands at the moment it's this this full up full set story episode is a, is a really strong one even with the weaknesses of the shorter stories um in the pat there's a version like when it was originally screened it had witch's feast on um, the version that you see on the dvds and on the um and on hulu isn't that it's uh, satisfaction guaranteed as the final story um, which is what, when it was re, re, reissued, when it was republished, uh, rebroadcast, I should say. That's the version that was shown, uh, and, it, and that the, that four story episode is fantastic. We are going to talk about Witch's Feast as well, um, but we'll, and I'll probably do that fourth, you know, the next one, and then talk about Satisfaction Guaranteed. But as a whole, I think this is a great episode and a really strong opening to it. 
just the usual bits of housekeeping um, if you want to contact me you can do on twitter at, at orange underscore monkey uh, best way to get hold of me normally is through there if you want a you know, quick response uh, you can also get hold of me uh, on the website uh, dimensionxradio.com where you can also find twilight zone podcast dimension x 50s radio show suspense uh, there's also links to the forums and also uh, the Facebook page. And uh, we're also on Twitter with DimensionXRadio.com. So there's lots of different ways of getting hold of us and contacting us and spreading the word. Um, Tom was kind enough to uh, forward me, because um, obviously, well, he deals with the host, and I think I mentioned this a few times before, but he forwarded me the uh, stats for last month, and we had a, a bumper month of downloads, which is amazing considering you know uh, that I missed a few weeks out and it, you know it's great I mean it, the, I, I think Tom very kindly always says the show's going from strength to strength but I think the figures are starting to really show that, that you know it's, it's doing really well and, and that's fantastic news and I'm hoping everyone that's listening to it and downloading it are enjoying it um, a quick correction as well um, last week when I was talking about Phantom What Opera I, met, I said that Gene Kearney directed Nature of the Enemy and I used that as a kind of a and that's why I don't like him that isn't true, he didn't um, it was Alan Reisner who directed Nature of the Enemy I mentioned that actually in the Nature of the Enemy episode uh, I was just going back just just doing a bit of fact checking and I realised my horror what I'd said uh, sorry, um, I, a lot of this you can probably tell from how I speak it tends to be uh, I revisit the episode, I make some notes, and then I just talk about it to you. So occasionally I slip up and make mistakes, and I'm very sorry about that. Hopefully you forgive me. Uh, I do stand by my opinions of Kearney, though. He does... Um, I've talked about Witcher's Feast in a couple of weeks' time, and man, that is a bad story. Uh, that's one of the worst shorts, in truth. Uh, in fact, it's so bad, they jib it off and get to, they get rid of it. Sorry, Scouse slang. They get rid of it and replace it with Satisfaction Guaranteed, which is a great story. Um... Next week, we're going to be talking about The Merciful, which again was directed by Genoa uh, Swark. It's a, it's a Jack Laird short. It's only three and a half minutes long, and it's one of the better ones. So um, look forward to speaking to you about that. And then uh, we'll get on to another classic as well after that. So speak to you soon and take care. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>